<laughs> and uh man, we're gonna have a really good time discussing your book. Gonna have good. a good time discussing your book. All right, so co-keepers, we have the good brother Steve Phillips with us, author of How We Win the Civil War. We're still at Civil War. How we win the Civil War. And I'm code keepers, I know what you're thinking. You know, what's this have to do with empowerment? Stay tuned. What's this have to do with black empowerment? Stay tuned. All right. Welcome to Get On Code, the Fly Guy Show, which is a series of melanated conversations focused on empowerment, health, wealth, and knowledge of self. People think in binary choices because they are conditioned to. And on the wall was a picture of a wolf and a lion. I think the wolf was the Democratic Party, the lion was the Republicans. But the drug trade and all these illegal stuff that uh, people do, that's still economics. It's just that they couldn't do it in a traditional system. We're talking about melanated wealth. So we can build wealth, but we just, for some reason, don't seem to be able to transfer it. You had a great experience. Fine. That means nothing. What were you told as a child about education? You had to be how many times better? Every impression without an expression becomes depression. And we're back, Code Keepers. We're here with the good brother Steve Phillips, author of How We Win the Civil War. And I, I jokingly said, we're still in a civil war, but we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. But first, I want to say that this man has, is the business. He's really the business. He's the author of the New York Times and Washington Post. Best-selling brown is the new white. I think we should kind of start with that, and then we can get into your new book, How the Demographic Revolution, Demographic Revolution, has created a new American majority. Speak to that, good brother. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be a part of this conversation. Um, so Brown is the New White really grew out of my concern that people in progressive politics in particular and the progressive movement didn't appreciate the, signif the significance and the implications of how and why Barack Obama got elected president. And that to me, somebody who came of age in the uh, uh, you know, Rainbow Coalition, the Jesse Jackson's campaigns, which was a direct connection to the civil rights movement, it was very clear to me that this was an extension of the civil rights movement within this country, expanding the electorate. The Rainbow Coalition brought more and more people of color into the voting process, into the voting uh, uh, process. And that actually led towards significant changes like flipping uh, the United States Senate back in 1986. So it all very was it seemed self-evident to me. But then lots of people were discounting the significance of uh, the transformation of the electorate and the, and the implications of the demographic revolution in the politics. So I was like, let me try to clarify and make clear that there is, in fact, a new American majority that consists of the overwhelming majority of people of color aligned with the meaningful minority of whites who are progressive. That's the majority of people. That's the majority that elected and reelected Obama. And if we're going to change the country, we need to lean into those groups, those leaders, that strategy that continues to bring more and more people um, of color into the process. So that was the point of that book. And that was kind of in some ways the um, predecessor uh, to, to the, my more current book. Yeah, I can see how that can be the launching pad. Now, when I, when I saw that quote, you know, Brown is the new white, I really kind of thought about how in some cases, 
are people who we consider brown, you know, <laughs> you know, when we codify people and we call them brown. Um, in some ways, those who are codified as brown have acted like some of the non-progressive whites when it comes to quote unquote black people. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting, but you you really took it from a totally different perspective. Um, but that book, like you said, was the launching pad for how we win the civil war. So are we still in a civil war? And if so, how do we win? Well, we very much are still in the civil war. And so this is the first part of my book. There's two parts. One is trying to impress upon people the severity of the fight that we are in, the fact that we are in a fight with people who do not play by the same set of rules, who do not subscribe to the same social contract, and do not even uh, subscribe to the same constitution. And so that, and I, the introduction to my book titled uh, A Choice Between Democracy and Whiteness, and I, that's a phrase from uh, Taylor Branch, author of uh, Parting the Waters, the civil rights books, looking at the rise of white domestic terrorism under Trump and noting that this was a reaction to the country's increased racial uh, diversification. He says people said they would not stand for becoming a minority in their own country. And the question is, if we gave them a choice between democracy and whiteness, how many would choose whiteness? And that is very much what happened on uh, uh, January 6, 2021. All 50 governors, Republican and Democrat, affirmed the election results, and the election results that showed that Joe Biden had won the presidency. But the champion of white people, Donald, Donald Trump, refused to concede, and many, many people wanted to keep him in power because he is the champion of, of, of whiteness, rather than concede to the democratic results. And they cast aside and tried to destroy democracy in favor of whiteness. And so it that's mm. the most recent manifestation of the failure to uh, uh, subscribe to the Constitution and the contract. But it goes all the way back to the Civil War itself, which itself began when the side that lost to the candidate supported by black people in 1860 refused to accept the election results to the extent that they succeeded from the union weeks after the election. And that was the predicate for the Civil War. And then you take it to then supposedly ending the Civil War in Appomattox when Robert E. Lee surrendered in uh, April of 1865. Just five days later, they mm -hmm. assassinated Lincoln. They assassinated him because, as uh, uh, John Wilkes Booth said to somebody a few days before he killed Lincoln, that that means N-word citizenship. That's the last speech he'll ever give. And true to his word, he went into Ford Theater and shot Lincoln in the back of the head. So, which led to then weakening the support for uh, Reconstruction and for uh, Black equality, which then led to giving the whole South back to the slaveholders, plunging us into a hundred years of uh, white nationalism, legalized white supremacy within this country. So you could only say that the war ended if you wanted to, maybe in six, 1964 <laughs> and 65, but certainly didn't end in 1865. Oh, that's intriguing. Uh, what's kind of interesting on uh, page 69 of your book, that's an interesting page to turn to, uh, but <laughs> you talked about the reach of the KKK extended far beyond stereotypical images and tattooed bikers in bar. It attracted support from the highest precincts of power in the country. Now, I think that's intriguing because when we look at the evil supremacy that we've been fighting against, 
it hasn't been just the blatant, you know, robe wearing, mask wearing, you know, uh, cross burning KKK members. It's been in the political system. It's been in the judicial system. It's been in the policing system. You know, it's been in the educational system. You know, we've been struggling and dealing and in many ways overcoming the evil supremacy system in all facets of American life. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I, mean, I, 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 I talk about there being a consistent with the refusing to surrender the Civil War, that there's been a consistent Confederate battle plan for the past 157 years. And one part of that is silently sanctioning terrorism, sometimes not so silently. And I, in the, the 20th century chapter, I talk about the Klan. And I, 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 I said, do you ever think about where the Klan gets their robes? And said that to illuminate that there was like a newspaper, people would advertise within the newspaper. There was a whole Ooh. commercial operation within the Ku Klux Klan that generated resources from selling goods, swords, Bibles, dry cleaning, life insurance, that generated the equivalent of $300 million a year in, in modern day dollars. That's how well-funded and mainstream the Klan was at the height of its power um, in the 1920s. And so that's something we don't appreciate in this country is another example of they never stopped fighting. The Klan was formed by Confederate veterans specifically to terrorize African-Americans and keep us out of the political process and grew to enormous popularity and power and influence. Man, the, the book is riveting. So Code Keepers, make sure you pick up your copy wherever you pick up your books, hopefully your Melanated Bookstore, How We Win the Civil War. So, you know, the title begs the question. You know, you discuss what the Civil War is. How do we win this. And I have to tell you, you know, the code keepers and I, we focus on empowerment and we believe that empowerment is the means by which we finally overthrow evil supremacy, white supremacy, black inferiority complex, whatever you want to look at. Um, we believe that it's empowerment. How, you know, what say you, <laughs> you know, you wrote a book about it, so we got to listen to you. <laughs> and right. it's a good no, Absolutely. So the whole second half of the book is how we win. And it's case studies of places where we have won. So it's not a, um, you know, a hopeful or wished for uh, uh, articulation. It's an examination of where we have, in fact, won. Right? I call the, George, the title of Georgia chapter Georgia. That's not one we expected. Because that's what Joe Biden said on, on election night as he was going through the, the, the results. Because they didn't understand and see and didn't invest. But he didn't see the work that Stacey Abrams had been doing for a decade. When I met Stacey 10 years ago, and she says, we're losing by 200,000 votes in Georgia. There are a million and a half people of color who don't vote in Georgia. I'm going to go register them. And that work over the course of a decade is what led to Biden defeating Trump um, in Georgia. And it was what led to flipping the, the Georgia Senate seats that flipped control of the entire United States Congress. And so that, to me, is empowerment. And I think that's the challenge of the work, is finding and backing and supporting the leaders like Stacey Abrams, the leaders like you know Michelle Tremillo in Texas, like Tram Wynn in Virginia, who are building the political power, organizing the people of color, bringing people of color into the electorate in ways that transform and impact the outcomes so that we can then have the government be on the side of empowerment 
and addressing the historical obstacles and getting over the gap, right? So that the this country, I'm sure you discuss a lot, is a profound racial wealth gap, which was government created and maintained. And so if we're going to address that, we need to get the political power to then be able to have public policies that really advance uh, uh, equality measures that overcome centuries of exploitation, legalized discrimination, handing white people billions of dollars has happened during the uh, during the GI Bill. But the predicate is to find and back the leaders who can do the work and who can transform these regions um, from Confederate outposts to multiracial democracy um, um, examples. That's intriguing that you bring up Queen Stacey Abrams. Uh, you know, we salute Queen Stacey for her work, although it seems that she's done work for the Democrat Party. And her work necessarily hasn't been for our empowerment. And I'm not sure if we can expect either party. You know, pick a party, <laughs> name a party, the Green Party, the Red Party, the Blue Party, the Purple Party. I'm not sure if we can expect any of those parties to really work for our empowerment when some of the things we've been asking for since the 1800s are considered um, policies that won't get people elected. You know, uh, what's your response to that, bro? Yeah, there's some truth. I, I think there's that. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's always been a struggle between the demands of the movement and then the moment of the electorate. And so the most recent and, and clear um, articulation of that really did come in the wake of the uh, killing of George Floyd and the movement uh, demand arose around defund the police. And that those of us who get pulled over by the police, those of us who are tired of seeing unarmed black people killed by the police understood that very clearly. Right. That was very uh, provocative and challenging and difficult for a lot of uh, particularly white people to grapple with in terms of the implications of it. Crime has always been a proxy in terms of uh, white fear of people of color. So there's always been this tension between the movement demands and what the movement requires um, and then what is palatable at a particular point in time in the, in the electoral process. Um, but interesting, you know, it's, it's Jesse Jackson's talk about, uh, uh, you know, today's protest is tomorrow's mainstream, right? I mean, I'm old enough to remember when I, when I used to work when my first jobs was in college, working for the Cleveland Plain Dealer on okay. their editorial, uh, I was an intern on the editorial board. And this was in, in 1985 where I, with great difficulty, convinced them to write a piece saying that the United States government should talk to the African National Congress in South Africa. Ooh, the ANC, interesting. And that was a controversial statement to make, to push them in that direction. And then ultimately, the uh, Nelson Mandela gets elected president of South Africa. And so whether or not people are going to be responsive at a particular moment, you have to be on the, the movement continue, has to continue to push us to be able okay. to embrace these things. And there are things that did become more mainstream. My first book, my publisher was saying, think of something like crazy blue sky ideas that you can propose. And I was like, all right, there should be a wealth tax. Let's tax the, not the income, but the wealth of the top 1% of the country. And with that, you could actually end poverty in this country. And then you have the presidential election and Elizabeth uh, uh, Warren's all like, there should be a wealth tax. And I'm all like, oh, so it's not so radical an idea anymore, is it? 
And so hmm. currently the Supreme Court piece, you know, so the notion around should you expand the Supreme Court to redress the seats that were stolen? I forget. I didn't know the Supreme Court had been the size had been changed seven times in this country's history. Ooh. So we need to be more uh, aggressive and um, confident around asserting an agenda that will advance empowerment, that will advance equality. And, and speaking of empowerment and advancing an agenda, and I know we don't have much, too much time with you. I think we have, what, two more minutes? Yes, I think so. <laughs> right. Yeah, this was a short one, Code Keepers. Uh, Katie Wicks asked the question that it seems that our Democrat family seems to run from. They, it, you know, you know, Kamala Harris, you know, she said, I'm not going to do anything that only benefits black people. You know, President Biden, uh, I, I, I'm not really with that. And if so, I'm going to give it to the Native Americans first who already have received it. <laughs> you know, um, any last words, brother? I know that, you know, we have a minute left and we really can't dive deep. KD Wicks, man, I'm glad you asked the question. Maybe you can. Um, is that addressed in this good book? It is addressed in the epilogue of the book where I, I get at the question of reparations. She's quite correct. The Democrats have been afraid to actually address it to uh, because of the political ramifications and fallout. They've been afraid to even look at studying the issue. But what I talk about in the epilogue is before you get into reparations, let's have the conversation about what is owed. What is owed to a people who created the wealth of this country and were never compensated for that? And that's resulted in the current existing uh, racial wealth gap. So let's have that discussion. And then the answer to that question may lead to us towards reparations. But people are afraid to grapple with, but need to grapple with, what is owed in the context of the history of this country? I would say the, uh, you know, President Biden used that term, something about the, uh, what did he put? How did he put it? We're in a battle for the soul of the nation. Uh, well, the soul of the nation rests on us getting our reparations, I believe. But, hey, we've been talking with the good brother Steve Phillips, author of How We Win the Civil War. It's in the epilogue. It's in the back. It's in the end. It's his ending thoughts. It's our launch pad. So we should check that out, KD Wicks. Check that out because he deals with reparations there. And I want to say, Code Keepers, pick up the book. Find him on the Internet. Follow him on the internet and let's make this thing pop. So, Steve, thanks for giving us all the free time that you've given us today. Good luck on the book. God bless you with the book. Godspeed on the book. And uh, let's make some change, y'all. Peace. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Okay. Okay. And we're out. Great.